Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dating Intelligence. And I got my lovely co-host, Jamie Villamore. What's going on, girl? Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited to be back in my apartment. I, you know what, guys? <laughs> first of all, I have something new to say. When I And when you watch this on the video, I actually am wearing a Los Angeles shirt today because we are actually filming out of Melrose Podcast in Los Angeles. It's yeah. the first time, Woo. first for us. We're super happy and uh, yay. I know. We're in my hometown now. I know. I love this. I can't believe I'm here. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> I didn't have to get up early. Well, I had to get up early for tennis, but I didn't you have did. to get up early. I didn't have to go slipping across like on a plane to wait and oh. see if it's going to show up or not show up. I didn't have to like run like, you know, OJ Simpson trying to get to the next location. This was amazing. I know. Today. I was thinking about you when I was mm -hmm. traveling here yesterday. I'm like, how the fuck does he do it? Like, <laughs> been doing it for how long though? It's been I almost know. like a year and a half. So now. I feel like it was. Like I had to pay my dues. Right. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Well, so I'm here. Thank and you. um Chris made me dinner last night. It was so amazing. <laughs> he had blueberries for me, I, my blackberries. I, 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 I was I like, really know what you love. Fuck, maybe I need to come out more. I'm telling you, you would be treated like a queen here, you know, and especially when so my wife was me. missing and I was like, What is going on here? It's like so and she's like, yeah. she's like, you don't have to cook for me. I was like, Of course I'll cook for you still. I love it. I was like, I just like threw some seasoning on some you know, turkey meat. It was done. <laughs> so taco, good. taco night. So good. Easily. All right, guys, we have an amazing show today. We have this awesome yes. guest and uh, we're going to get right into this. So our guest today has had a roller coaster of a life and we are so happy <laughs> to have her here on our show today. She is an author, speaker, and host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room. With her new book, Stash, My Life in Hiding, it's a memoir of her life dealing with everything from childhood to drug abuse to trying to fit into a lifestyle that sometimes seems like it was all an award winning performance. She literally found a way to overcome all of her obstacles to get to the core essence of who she really is today. Please welcome the beautiful Laura Cathcart Robbins to the show. Ooh. Hi, Laura. Thank you. Thank you so much. How was much. that intro? Is that okay? That was gorgeous. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> like you know, your co-host. Uh, <laughs> thank yes. you. I always say, you know, like the intro has to be something where I look into your, you know, to your history and your bio, but I yeah. want to make sure that I put my own spin on it because I don't want to have it the same as anyone else's. No, so, no, I like it a Live. Right, and I know you're going to be going on book tour soon. Yes. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. right. I will be. When does that start for you? It starts. Um, so, like, just before you're listening to this, like the first weekend of March. Great. Yeah. Great. All right. So you hear that, guys? Okay, we so have her ha first. Uh, you have your schedule already set. I do. Okay. I and do. where's the first couple places the, you're hitting? The first couple places are Tucson, Arizona. Okay. There's a book festival there, and it's a really big one. So I'll be there for three days doing different panels. And then I'm back here in LA, which is my hometown. Woohoo! <laughs> Go Lakers! Um, <laughs> and I have a I have a bunch of events here. And then I'm in Washington D.C., then New York, then San Francisco, then San Diego, um, and and then um, Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, yeah, I love it great. out there. Okay, so how long does your tour span out for? I, um, from March till May. Okay. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So we caught her at the right time. We you literally did. caught the right time because if we oh. caught her at the in, tail end of her like book tour, she'd be like, if I talk about this book one, one more time, time. I'm yeah. about to stash you <laughs> yeah. guys somewhere. <laughs> Tell you. Okay. So, so I'm going to, I want to like hop in because yeah. so many people actually talk about writing a book. Yes. And it's something that you hear all the time. Like, oh, I'm going to write one day or, oh, I'm working on my book. And then it never comes. Like, how did you, for like our listeners really decide to pull the trigger on it? And where did you start? That is a great question. Um, I've been toying with the idea, like you said, for like a lot of people for a long time, since about 2016, like seriously writing stuff down. I wrote a couple of proposals. They got rejected. And in the summer of 2020, as a response to what was going on in our country with the cultural reckoning, HarperCollins put out an Instagram post saying they would take um, 30 pages and a query, which is a pitch letter, mm -hmm. from unagented Black authors. <gasps> wow. And if you got them, these 30 pages and the query, by the end of the summer, they put it out in June, then you would be considered. I didn't have 30 pages or a query, <laughs> but I decided that's it. This is the sign that I was waiting for. Yeah. I'm going to write these 30 pages. I don't even pages. know what a query is. It's a pitch letter. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like right. a synopsis, <laughs> like a synopsis okay. pitch. And so I started writing and I have a writer's group, shout out to them. They were reading as I went along. Um, one of them really helped me with my pitch letter, Amy Bond, thank you. And I submitted it by the deadline and I got one of the automatic replies. Oh, that's great. That said, thank you for your fiction submission. And I went, <clears throat> oh, it's memoir. 
it's a true story. They're not going to, I knew it wouldn't be considered because I didn't see that piece Mm -hmm. in the post (laughs) that said fiction. Um, But what happened was a friend of mine, a couple months later, uh, her name is Holly Whitaker. She wrote this incredible book called Quit Like a Woman. It's also in the recovery space. Uh, She's a New York Times bestselling author, so a little plug for her. She read it, fell in love with the 30 pages and the query, sent them to her agent. This was um, in November. And two days later, her agent signed me and said, how quickly can you write this? Oh, that's unbelievable. Wow. That's great. So that was that was how that happened. And that was in 2020? That was in 2020. So okay. I, I turned it in April of 2021. Oh, wow. Um, and then she shopped it. Uh, <coughs> we had this amazing, it, it went at auction, which means that the big five publishing houses were bidding against each other for it. And it was sold to Simon & Schuster, Atria Simon & Schuster. And then I started writing the, you know, uh, edit with an editor and, um, yeah. And, and what was the time frame between that, that point to where they uh, started shopping it around? So, so yeah. So when Re- Rebecca Gradinger, that's my agent in April, 2021, she started, she finished edits and then waited for the summer because a lot of people take summer vacations in the publishing industry and they actually don't read during that time. So uh, it was September okay. that okay. she sent it out and I got signed in October. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's really fast. That's too. huge. Congratulations. And Thank then you. how was it working with, with her, like as far as the writing goes? Because I hear a lot of, they want to change this or add that. You know, it was, it was, I heard that too. And I was, I was a little worried about it because as you know, when you read the memoir, you'll see it's really, really personal and really vulnerable. And it's true. So I didn't want mm-hmm. to edit any, I didn't want to change it at all for anybody. Right. But they were amazing. Like they just really asked me to enhance it by adding certain things. So I had the opportunity to read um, last night ah. and I was telling him this morning because I know that Chris read it as well. And mm-hmm. I was like, I love, so there are so many things that I can kind of relate to in your story that mm. like touched me. And I'm like, oh, I feel that. Like I remember when I was dealing with mm. like the divorce and, yes. and at least um, telling my kids and like yeah. all those feelings. Um, but I love the humor that you, yeah. that you yeah. add yeah. in. Thank it's you. It's a great like, point of view. Yeah. It's, it <clears throat> takes something that's so like personal and like hurtful, but adds like that. It's going to be okay. Mm, Do you right. know what I mean? I think so. Thank you both for that. That yeah. was something that she kept, uh, my agent kept prodding me mm. to add more in. She's like, I want to hear more of your voice. You're funny. Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. Yeah. Let's hear it on the page. So I was just like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Because a lot of it's internal, as you know, like I'm thinking things to myself. But I feel like that's the best writing, though, because if you're not like holding yourself back and just allowing yourself just to just like, you know, just write and just flow mm-hmm. with it and just the first thoughts. But it's because it's your life, you yes. know? So, and this yes. is how you're interpreting it with the feelings and the snarkiness and then the yeah. funny stuff. But um, yeah, but it, it's fantastic, though. So, we're going to get a little bit more into it because we're, guys, we're going to get into Laura's book right now. But, but the episode title is going to be an important part of all this. So, today yes. we're going to talk about the imposter syndrome, which mm-hmm. is, you know, obviously the internal psychology. Psycholo- logical experience of feeling like a phony in some areas of your life, despite any success that you have achieved in that area. Mm-hmm. And I know at a very young age, you know, obviously we, one thing that I think that um, I gravitated towards you um, when I met you last year at PodFest, um, we guys, we met at a, pod fa- a podcast com- conference, um, was the fact that, you know, I also grew up um, as um, a black person in an all white world. Let's just mm-hmm. be honest. Okay. Mm-hmm. So my parents, I always call my parents the Huxtables, honestly, you know, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a psychologist. So we were always at the best schools, but there was never any one of our color around. So I learned how to adapt really quickly. Yes. Um, it's funny though, but my sisters both married black men, which is funny to believe, but you know, I mean, it's like, and I just went off on the rail somewhere else. But yes. <laughs> anyways, I always felt like I was the black sheep of the family because I was the one always sitting around, looking around, trying to see where I fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, as, as that happened, I also learned how to become the person I am today because of the fact that I chose to take in the scenario, take in the scenery and learn how to adapt to it my way without having to give up who I am as a person. Mm. So um, I want to talk about you and how your childhood, how that was for you growing up. And I know you mentioned your book, but just give us a little tidbit on how that was for you as a child. Sure. I mean, I think, 
Yeah, my podcast is called The Only One in the Room. Mm -hmm. Yes, and let everyone know what that's about, Laura, because you know, yes. I know, but it's, I think right. it's fantastic. Well, it's, and just, just briefly, I went to a, a three-day retreat in 2018, a writer's retreat with Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strait, amazing retreat, two of my heroes, and sheroes, and I, <laughs> it was 600 people, and for three days, I was the only black person I saw. So I wrote about my experience when I got home. I wrote about it for the Huffington Post. It went viral. The responses I got were not just from black people, which is what I thought was going to happen, but from you know all races all over the world, all ages, all socioeconomic, whatever, saying, I get it. I know what it's like to feel alone in mm -hmm. a room full of people. So those are the stories that we tell on the podcast. But you know, the original experience of me being the only black one in this very white space um, began when I was a kid, like you said, mm -hmm. and um, the independent schools that I went to, which I was fortunate enough to get to go to. I don't ever remember any bigotry when I was growing up, um, not not from my peers at all. I was more fetishized. Okay, like my hair when my when it wasn't in braids, it would be it would be in two big puffs <laughs> on either side of my head, and like the other kids would dig their fingers into it, like in, like cotton candy, right. and play with it. They just thought I was, they thought it was incredible, you know, but yeah. it was because it was different. So I remember not really liking that, like not liking being the center of attention for that reason. I wanted to be the center of attention the way they were, which was like, they were all the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I didn't want to stand out that way, but it wasn't terrible. Yeah. And I enjoyed it, you know, to a certain point, but I, um, so I, I, I'm aware that I have privilege in that. You know, my my dad's also a doctor. My mom's an artist, so there's socioeconomic privilege. There's some cultural privilege mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, I'm light skinned. You know, on the scale, so there was something there. Like, so I didn't have the experiences and struggles that a lot of Black people do when they're in alone in in or just when they're not of the dominant culture, right. whatever that culture might be. But um, it when I got to be an adult. That's when that's when I was in Florida for four years and I was called the N-word for the first time. Somebody oh. racing by me in a truck with the Confederate flag, you know, obscuring the back window. And I was like, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> did he really just yell that at me? Like, how did it make you feel when you heard that? I was shocked. I wasn't even like hurt. I yeah. was just like, oh my goodness, this is like on TV. Like I've I had never had that experience. And I was in Cambridge, Mass., you know, adjacent to Boston during the busing of the 70s. And I still never heard that directed toward me. Yeah. Um, and it happened a lot there. I was refused service. What? When I lived there, people would not, this woman would not do my nails. Her salon was empty. There was no customers. And I said, well, what about in an hour? What about in an hour? And she's like, nope, no room, right. no room. Not necessarily saying you. why she yeah. can't, but she just- She just refused. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I had I had a lot of things like that happen. So um, so my experience, you know, flipped then. But what I, what I think I heard you talking about was also that drive to be excellent, mm -hmm. more excellent than my peers, so that I would be regarded the same way. And not because I'm representing wherever I go, right? I'm always representing black people, especially when I'm in in white spaces. I'm probably I might be the only one they talk to that day. Right. So I better be on my A game. You're you know? you're, you're, you're you're preaching to me. Yes. Like, it's the same thing that how my life is. Like we we parallel very much the same way. Like yeah. I have never had any issues. I think the first issue that I, and this is more of a feeling um, for me, like I've always been just that person where like yourself, where I have to be like, if I'm the only black one in the room, I have to make sure that I'm representing all people of color because of the fact yes. that when I meet that person, I want them to not only, not only to not see a color, but to go, oh, okay. Like, you know, all black people are pretty it's, all right. It's so, so interesting mm -hmm. that you take on that, that pressure. Well, it's, but it's pressure. I feel like most people like, like, I feel like you're going to say for me, it's, it's like, I took it on because I felt like, you know, first and foremost, I know that. I'm not, not, and by the way, it's more of my own personal mm -hmm. insight that I feel because if I am in here, not to, not that I'm outwardly thinking I have to represent other black people, but I know yes. for a fact that it's gonna, if it's gonna resonate, it's the waves are gonna, the shock waves are gonna push out somewhere else. So if I'm an asshole or a dickhead or doing something really stupid, oh, there's another, then they're gonna just see me as another black person or view a black person on this is how they must act. Yes. So it is a sense of representation, but it's all like self 
it's, it's all yeah. inside, you know? Um, I've also had, like like you said, for me, um, like my childhood was great. Like I have never had any issues at all. Never, I mean, all my yeah. friends, nothing. But but you hear things and you and you go through things that make you go, like, you know, you do that little head tilt going, mm -hmm. huh, mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll take note of that. Mm -hmm. And then when I took note of it, I made sure that that would never happen again. Yeah. And for me, like for yourself, I'm from Texas. So my mom was even always like, you know, when I dated a white girl or this, that, she goes, just make sure you're careful. And I'm like, why do I need to be careful? I go, mom, I got eyes in the back of my head, which is, which has helped me through my life. Like yeah. I'm so aware of when I'm in a room, I can spy a person 50, like 50 <laughs> people back going, hmm, I feel like spider sense is tingling. Something's mm -hmm. going on back yeah. there. And I feel like I have to change that person's mind, yeah. that point of view. You know, my girlfriend took me to um, New Orleans, uh, to Louisiana for her grandmother's um, 80th, I think it was her 90th birthday. And she had told me, we've been together for six years um, at the time. She goes, I'm never going to take you home to meet my family. And she goes, because uh, there's some people who are racist in my family. I'm not going to tell you they are. And, but she goes, but my mom, my close, my close family, you can meet all day, which I have. They're lovely. Mm -hmm. But when I went to it, finally, she goes, hey, I'm taking you to Louisiana. I go, I was like, yeah, let's do this. I was excited, <laughs> Laura. So when I got there, I went in the room. Once again, the only one in the room. And I went there and I, you know, I'm like Florence and I go floating on ice, like going, hey, hey. <laughs> By the end of the people were like, oh my God, Chris, I'm the one who took the cake up to the front. I was yeah. so loved yeah. at that point. At the end of the day, three of the people who were the most racist there, the next day, her parents told me that they thought I was the most amazing person I've ever met. They, she go, that guy is lovely. Jamie's boyfriend is the best person I've ever met in my entire life. Mm. And not going, I went into it not thinking that. I went into it going, I'm just going to be me because I know that I'm, I'm a person who can handle any situation because of who I am mm. and colored should never be an issue. Yeah. And that's my point of view. So, so do you feel that way? Mm. Are we on the same page with that? You know, it's it's interesting mm -hmm. that you bring that up um, because my my boyfriend, um, producer and co-host, Scott Slaughter, who I call Hun, <laughs> and myself. So Scott's white. He grew up in Richmond, which was the seat of the Confederacy for many years. And uh, I, I met him in treatment, um, which you'll read about in the book. But uh, we lived in different states when I first met him. He finally moved out here when his dad was dying. Um, a, a, about a year later, a year into our relationship, I flew out to support him um, because he was, he was, it was him and his mom. He's an only child and his dad was dying, you know, and I was in love with this man. So I flew to Richmond. I had never been there before. The first thing I saw when I got out of the plane was a, a truck and it's on the, the sign in the back said, give, give me my freedom, my guns, and something you can keep the change because president obama at that time was running on the the um like his i can't think what it's called platform okay. of change mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so anyway um i got there to the hospital he's in the icu and i meet his mom for the first time who's lovely very southern bell soft fluttery and gets very warm and they're like we need to go in and let him know that you're here because he's had a stroke. He can't really move. We just want to prepare him. And we need to tell him that you're black. And I was like, what? <laughs> he doesn't know. He knows your girlfriend's coming from California. Oh, yes. And he doesn't know that I'm black. No. Wow. So I'm like, well, this man is That's on his- weird. Why right. did you say that? And you're just going to put him in his grave now? What's well, because <laughs> he had grown up without ever really socializing with a black person and had grown up. He was NASCAR. He was- mm. You know, he used the N-word. He was racist. Right, yeah. But he, I don't know if I should say he was racist, but he he wasn't he wasn't a bigot. Okay. Like, he didn't say or do anything hateful toward people who didn't look like him, but he didn't really want to socialize with them. Gotcha. Like, he didn't, they were very separate from, as far as he was concerned. And he was very ill, and they didn't want to give him another stroke or a heart attack when I walked in. Right. <laughs> wow. wow. So. Wow. They prepared him. They came back and got me. And I'm reeling, right? Because I'm in the ICU waiting room now going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And so I walk in there and I see him. And the first thing I see are my boyfriend's eyes in this man's face. Like I was just – and I got instant tears mm. because there's my Scotty's eyes mm. in this man I've never seen looking at me. And he's small, you know, he's like in the hospital under the pastel colored blanket. His, you can see his veins in his hands. He has all kinds of tubes in his arms. 
and his eyes are following me as I walk in and Scott has my hand and he's like, here she is, dad. And Harry looks up at me and his kind of motions for me to come around his good side. Left side was paralyzed. So I went around to his right side and his right hand like really, really struggles to spring into action. And it kind of makes its way across the blanket and grabs mine. It's very impressive force. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, he's really strong. <laughs> and he looks at Scott and he looks at me and he can't talk because he's traked and he mouths the word beautiful. Oh. And we all just oh, wow. start crying. Harry's <clears throat> crying. Scott's crying. His mom is crying. I'm, I'm that's crying. That's a great moment. That's such a good moment. <laughs> and so to your point, mm -hmm. Scott and I are of the belief that when there is prejudice, meaning that you're prejudging somebody you don't know. Exactly. Love is the way. Love is the answer. Your your girlfriend brought you in because she loved you. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's when you really get to know somebody. It's really hard, I think, to get to know somebody you might be prejudiced against without that being the conduit, without somebody loving that person and bringing them into your life in that way. Right. Because then you're kind of forced to look at them in a different way. You're the great guy that every, like, you're the best guy they ever met. Please bring the cake up to the front. That would have never happened if they no. had just run into you in That's the store or seen true. you on TV or even right. just heard you on the podcast. Mm -hmm. That's you know? very true. I love that story. Yeah. Uh, gave me goosebumps. That was, awesome. that was a I good know. one. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> oh my gosh. So all right. Good. We're gonna we're gonna get into the hard stuff now, Laura. Yes. No, let's forget all yes. the flop. That was yes. all flop. You know, <laughs> never, never about us. You know, yeah. we know we're great. All right. Yeah. So, you know, this one we'll have to, we'll, we'll worry about her later. But oh, we're God. we know we're great. No. Okay, so let's I want to get into like um we're I'm just gonna throw it out there. When the when did you feel for you the imposter syndrome really hit hard and why did you feel like um like the drugs were the were your safety net? Oh my gosh. So, I mean, the imposter syndrome is, so basically what I, what I was briefly was I was someone who had been emotionally abused by her stepfather. I was someone who had dropped out of high school um, somewhere in the middle of the 10th grade. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly where. Never went to college. My education is all from reading. Thank goodness for books. I was a voracious <laughs> reader. I read all the time from the time that I could read, which was around four or five. And I had entered this world of, of public relations, which I started in this very building where we're filming the podcast <laughs> yes. today, which is just crazy to me. Um, so I was this publicist amongst all these college-educated publicists who had degrees and had gone through internships and started their own companies. And I had done none of that. I just was there and I knew how to write and writing press releases and bios and that kind of thing. And I ended up being able to do that for a living, but I never felt like I could measure up against the other publicists, mm -hmm. right? So I was always waiting to be found out. And I thought that after I got married to this amazing man, who's still an amazing man, um, who who was really legit, like he had, he had a really good career <laughs> and you know, he was really well-respected, I thought that there would be no heat on me after mm -hmm, I married right. him because I would be above reproach, right? Right. And, but when I got married, what happened was it wasn't just him. It was the lifestyle that I married into, which was very, um, there was a system in place for the wives of these people in the entertainment industry. And there were, you know, jewelry parties to host and, Person, like it was a very again it was I and I'm so aware it's a very privileged lifestyle, yes. but there were you know we all played tennis on a certain day we all contributed to the bake sale and we were room moms and we supported each other like I said by going to each other's jewelry shows and there were spa days and I don't like any of that stuff okay okay <laughs> any of it I don't like spa days I hate bridal showers I hate baby showers. I would rather, like, I'd so much rather be, like, in front of Netflix in my pajamas than be at a dinner party. I'm the same way. Right. I'm like, I don't want to do it. Right. I don't want to do it's it. It's almost oh. like you would have been called out more. Let's say, right, like what you just said, like, obviously yeah. you didn't like doing any of that. But let's say, you know what? I'm going to pass. Now you're going to be the brunt of a mm -hmm. lot of people's joke in a weird way, right? Yes. If you're not there and participating, oh, she must be da-da-da-da-da. Because right. now you're going to be talked about. Yeah. Well, I get that. Yes. Now, what were you going to say? Well, I, I 
was in the same boat. So my mm. ex is an actor, and then sh- just even showing up to those mm. events, yes, I didn't feel comfortable. Yeah. I didn't want it, and I didn't like it. So it was very hard for me. Yeah. Um. And then, like you said, if you say no, then all of a sudden you're the outcast, and you're yes. the one that's talked about. Yep. So it's almost like you have to show up, and that's part of being with that person is knowing that. Yes. That comes with territory. Well, you sign up for that. Yes. I don't, and I, I say in the book that I would like, when I, when he and I were dating, I was like auditioning for this part of his wife, but I had no idea. What came with what it. What came yeah, with it. Sure. And, um, and, you know, and I had been trying to fly kind of under the radar my whole life because mm-hmm. I didn't want to be found out as someone who didn't graduate from high school or didn't go mm-hmm. to college. I spent a year freebasing with this drug dealer when I was 19, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to be known as a drug addict. So I was like... I was scared at every turn that that might be discovered. So being the odd man out in those situations, like the one who doesn't go to bridal showers or bachelorette parties, that wouldn't put me under the radar. I needed to be under the radar. I needed to be part of and not separate from. (laughs) She's like right under their noses the whole time. (laughs) Exactly. So, but to answer your question, absolutely the pills that I was taking and the alcohol, which I washed them down with, helped me to show up inauthentically. So I could be the life of the bachelorette gotcha. party. Mm. I could be the PA president, the parent association president. Not that I was like drinking and, and taking pills while I was of doing course. that. Right. I'll, I did a couple times, but for the most part, I couldn't. I needed to be sober while I engaged in those types of things. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all I look forward to after my kids went to sleep was, oh, I can take them now. Oh, I can wash them down now. You can, I can be yourself. I can knock theory. out. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it helped that kind of numbing, that that journey toward oblivion helped me to cope with what I had to show up for the next day. And so I, I say very clearly, I'm I'm really grateful that I actually found drugs and alcohol. It let me show up for my life for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. They just stopped working for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've been curious on how, um, like, if you did not have that, what the alternative would have been, like, because there's always going to be some breaking point. So I wonder how much, um, you know, like, what do you no, mean? Like, okay. is there really? No, like, because like, I don't drink and do no, drugs. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, for her to show up like she did to not really be oh. to be found out, you know, like, she's like, oh, no, God, the jig is up. They're going to catch me. Like, yeah. like right, you know, right. they're going to start asking me more questions and da, da, da. But you're there. You're doing all this stuff. I mean, you're doing a lot. You did a lot of stuff. I mean, you probably still are doing stuff. a lot of stuff. So yeah. my question is, is that I'm wondering if you didn't decide discovered drugs and alcohol, like there would have been a breaking point, I'm sure, of just you going, I can't anymore, la, la, la. you know, like you're going to either drive mm-hmm. yourself nuts, like batshit crazy. I don't think so. I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. curious though, like, I'm mean, because think about it, there's got to be some trade-off though. We're all staring yeah. at you. He's yeah. like, it's, and it's I'm like, hard. no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. it would have had to have been drugs and alcohol. And I want to hear what you have to say, okay. but I think I would have had to have some help. Okay. And I wasn't willing to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's, I guess, yeah. and that's, that's your trade off. That, yeah. That's right. exactly okay. what I was going right. to say, because for me, using drugs or alcohol has never been an option for me. Right. So, and, but it's only because I grew up in a household where I saw the damage that it did right, to yes. my parents and my brothers. Yes. So I knew that it wasn't an option for me. So what I did is I needed, which was very hard for me because when you grow up taking care of yourself, yes. we don't want to depend on anyone. Okay. We, you have this <clears throat> when you're young, you're like, I can do it myself. I don't need anyone type attitude. Mm-hmm. And my breakthrough was when I finally realized, you know what? I do need help. I need someone to talk to that can help me navigate these situations. Yes. And that's what I was getting at. That's what I meant by breaking points. So I didn't mean to use like the harshest word, but I was trying to find, you know. Had I continued Mm -hmm. the way that I was continuing without help of any kind, I mean- to be clear for me, the pills and alcohol were help. Okay, right, right. Yeah. They, weren't, I, they just weren't the right kind right, of And I help. didn't know the extent <laughs> right, of that. Right, That's yeah. why I was asking the yeah. break, because I didn't know your extent of your breaking point means, ooh, now I got to ask for help. You know what I mean? That's yeah. your breaking point. So, Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it was, and that, but it was all con- conflated okay. then because mm-hmm. I was, you know, bottoming out in the drug addiction and my life had gotten to a point where I couldn't sustain it without it. Yeah. God, to be with you in those days, Laura, you looking for your uh, prescriptions to get filled. I would have loved to have ran around you with those oh days. How's she going to get out of this one? 
That's I mean, it's so, so funny. I mean, it's now I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. But no, it's, it's funny. Like, it's, the one, it's, it's exciting. Funny. It's funny. It is. I'm like, like the way you run, I was like, God, I'd like to be on her coattail. Like, go to that. Okay, sit in the pharmacy with her. Mm, how are uh, we going to get this uh, one, honey? Because I would have just been in there with you trying to help you, probably. I, I have mean, a really bad ambient story. Okay. Oh, tell I, me. Should I yeah. share? Yes, yeah. Okay, so um, I was tra- uh, younger mm-hmm. in my 20s. I had just gotten divorced. Mm. Um, and decided to go back into modeling. So, you know, here I am traveling cross country again. I'm not freaking sleeping for the life of me. So I go to my doctor and she prescribes me Ambien. And I'm the girl that like had my kids without like epidural, like no drugs, no drinking, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, do I really want to take these Ambien? I know I need to because I'm not freaking sleeping. It's not a big deal. So she writes me the prescription. She tells me, I just want you to be careful. Know that this is a gateway drug to other drugs. Mm. So then it freaks me out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, great. Because I'm always the one that's like, if I do the one line of Coke right. with my luck, it'll kill me. <laughs> <laughs> so just always afraid. Well, nowadays it might. But yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um. So... I have the Ambien. Uh, we have, we're in um, Chicago for a couple nights and I'm rooming with another girl. Don't know her that well. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm tossing and turning. I'm like, I'm not going to sleep. And she asked me, she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just having a hard time. Fall-. So then I'm like, I'm taking the Ambien. Yeah. Fuck it. So I popped the Ambien, you guys. And I don't remember anything. I passed out and slept so good. Woke up the next day, like ready to go. Felt like a million bucks. Yeah. Like, no feeling of, like, what people describe as a hangover. Yeah, right. And she looks at me and she's like, I'm like, I could tell. I'm okay. like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, we were talking. She goes, you don't remember last night, do you? And she has, like, a mortified look on her face. And I'm looking at her like, and you know her. Oh, You okay. know her. All right. I'm curious now. And this I'm looking better. at her. I'm like, oh, God, what did I do? She goes, you literally got naked on yeah, listen to that. Okay. You got butt naked on all fours and showed me how you like twerk. Stop I was it. like, no, Stop I didn't. It. And she goes, I couldn't believe it. She goes, I mean, girl, your body's hot. But I was like, wow, I don't even know this girl. Yeah. Like, I'm in for an amazing that is the ride. Flip side of and I'm like, I what? Mm-hmm. I, to this day, I don't remember, but to this day, we're still amazing friends. So yes. she doesn't hold it okay. against me. That's but, hilarious. But um, yeah, now I'm sweating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, like, so, just yes. from then on out, I'm like, ooh, I think Ambien's a no go for me. No yeah. go. Wow. So haven't like touched it since because I've been so afraid. Well, mm-hmm. it is classified as a hypnotic. Um, so that's one of the things it's, I honestly think that Ambien is a great drug for, for those for whom it works. And it's supposed to be taken for a very short period of time. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be taken for years and years and years. And then, or you know, in your case ever, <laughs> ever. You know? so for Jeez. some people it, it does, it doesn't work. You know, Tiger Woods was, had that horrible, cra- not the oh horrible, gosh, last horrible yes. crash, but the one in Florida. That's right. Um, he actually went, ended up going to the same treatment center that I went to. Um, to get off of it, okay. but he was on Ambien when he was driving at night. Wow! You know? Wow! I didn't know that. So, do you feel like you had to seek treatment for the Ambien? Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. So you did get addicted to the Ambien. Oh yeah. yeah, That's what I was addicted to. Right. That's I would wash That's it why down I wanted with, to be in line with, with her, like, yeah. <laughs> like trying to get those prescriptions. I'll, I'll be to see if you can get another one. No, done. I was completely obsessively like every every circle of addiction you can think of. I was in that with Ambien. Wow. Craziness. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the ride um, coming out of all this now, Laura. I know that um, you're, I mean, you're obviously you're, you're happy. You're a very happy woman now. You have a great life now. I mean, and I'm saying great life because like you're in a place now that you know who you are. You're happy and secure with who you are. Yes. You're being your true authentic self, right? I now. am. That's great. I love that. At How long moment. have you been married first? Well, not married. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we are, we've been together for almost 15 years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how long I've been sober. Okay. Wow. Okay. So tell us, so then tell us that ride from uh, on when you finally had your final, like your, like, I want to call it your, your lowest where you had the finally, you know, everything's over now. Right. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the rock bottom was in July of 2008 and it was not as spectacular as I thought it was going to be. I just simply was unable to take my kids to see the fireworks. I sent them with the neighbor and I was ashamed that I was not able to do this simple thing for them because I was in full-blown withdrawal and I didn't want anybody to know. And I, 
you know, the the evening went on um, where, and I'll, it's all in the book, so I won't go through the details. Yeah. But basically, I just, I I couldn't even cry. I was I was so bereft, um, and I was grieving the idea that I would never be able to do this again. You know, once I once I you know rang that bell and said I need help. I wouldn't be able to be yeah. to to get that good night's sleep again that I got with Ambien. I wouldn't be able to have that place to escape to. And um, but I I was I was at the end. I I couldn't I couldn't get high anymore, and I couldn't stay in withdrawal. That was my alternative. I was either trying to get high or I was in withdrawal all the time. I was detoxing all the time. So um, I checked into treatment, and a few a couple weeks later after. Sneaking, like cutting open my my tampons and <laughs> stuffing my pills in there and resealing them so that I could sneak them into treatment with me because I was pretty sure they wouldn't give me enough while I was in there or whatever they were going to give me for me it. to be comfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not even to come off okay. of it. I just wanted to be comfortable. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I thought they would do it. Um, um, you know, they would they would detox me medically correctly. But I wanted to be comfortable why they did that. And I didn't know that they would make me comfortable. So I snuck in a bunch of stuff. And it didn't last very long. It lasted for three days. I don't really remember it, honestly. Okay. Um, I remember getting into my room with the other three women that I shared the room with and being, oh, my goodness. I just, it was so... So institutional. I mean, it was an institution, but it felt <laughs> right. it felt very institutional. Yeah. And I was, it was. I had a really hard time there. I hated it the whole time I was there. I had never been away from my kids that long. Um, I didn't want to leave them. It felt all kinds of wrong to be going there to get better for them, and but not be able to be with them and leaving them. Right. I, I just I couldn't justify that in my head. And um, I met I met Scott the hour I checked in there. Uh, he, I was patient number 411, and he was patient number 412. Wow. So in the book, he's Scott S412 because okay. that's what his name tag says. And uh, he was very helpful to me. We, we didn't, like, hook up in mm -hmm. treatment. We were friends. But he was, he was just kind of like this calming force for me there. Um, my husband was the first white guy I'd ever dated. I'd only dated black guys up until then assumed that I was going to be going back to black guys after my husband. <laughs> and then, so there's this white guy, this blonde haired, blue eyed white guy in treatment from Utah, who's like, <laughs> loves the great outdoors. Like, I love the great indoors. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be inside. And he's a fly fisherman and a rock climber and a mountain biker. He's out on a mountain bike right, right now. Uh -huh. Surfer. Um, there's just no way. Like I thought we're so incompatible, right? And but he has two daughters that are my bonus daughters. That's what I call them. I, I met them when they were three and five. Aww. And um one's in Bali building schools now, the other one's a freshman at UC Berkeley. Wow. Uh they've been in my life since then and I have you know, I've had the privilege of having them in my life. So we were both parents with kids around the same ages and Nothing made sense, but everything made sense, you know? Um, so basically what I did was I got back, got out of treatment and I really tried to figure out how I could, you know, still keep using and still be a mom, but just not do what I did before. Right. I wanted to, like they say, drink like a lady, but I wanted to use Ambien like a lady. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to um, take one per night, you know? Every once in a while, as as needed. Now, with that being said, did you feel like you, at that moment coming out of that, was this something that you felt you could handle in a sense, or was this something like, you know, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do, but I'll just do it, like you said, like a lady? I mean, I think I convinced myself of a lot of things okay. during that time. Mm -hmm. I had very warped thinking. Um, there, I was very scared. I was terrified of facing my life. Uh, I didn't know who knew what. I didn't know if my all the parents at the school knew that I had gone to treatment for an addiction that I'd been, you know, showing up as their PA president for the last six months loaded. Right. Like I didn't know what anyone knew. And I was just really, really scared of coming back into my life. I was, you know, I I I miss my children so bad. And I I write about this the first night back with them, like I forgot how to talk to them. You know, I they were great. 
They God. were like, they fell right back into it. But I. It's always it, us. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And that perception we have of what, mm-hmm. like, right. And I'm like trying to be something for them. And I didn't know if it was landing. Okay. <laughs> like it just, yeah. it just, I, and you know, eventually, of course it did. It took, it took a few days and. I find that with almost any absence, though, like when when Scott goes on a surfing trip and he comes back, it takes us a few days to get back into our right. rhythm. I you call know? it I call mm-hmm. it acclimating. There's always that yeah. acclimation period. Yeah. So, but but it was, I I hated being in treatment. I I had a really difficult first year of sobriety. Uh, I was scared all the time. I didn't have anything to buffer it with. I didn't sleep that great because I the thing that had helped me sleep for right. years was gone and. Um, you know, I was newly divorced. And so that was another thing in my community where it was like Noah's Ark, everybody was paired up. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you know, I had been kind of on this pedestal in my marriage and I was no longer on that pedestal. I was gossip. I wonder what mm-hmm. happened to them. I wonder, I heard she went to treatment, you know, I didn't, nobody really knew, but there were whispers. Okay. There were whispers about what, what might've happened. And so it was just like, you know, I, I I describe it like I feel like someone turned on a fire alarm in my head the day I left treatment and it didn't go off for a year. Or, you know, like if you have, excuse the term, like low-grade diarrhea, mm. like you're talking to somebody, but all you can think about is getting to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so I was never present for anything. I just, mm. I was just thinking about, okay, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I was just trying, I was like a robot, like on autopilot trying to act like they, I think, like I thought they sh- they wanted me to act or that they, like, this is how I should be now. Right. But I was never really like that. Not that first year. When you were in treatment, yeah. did you feel like you didn't belong? I don't belong here. Oh, yeah. I was, they were really bad. <laughs> That's what everyone says, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. that they show up to yes. um, treatment and they're like, I don't fit in here. Mm-hmm. I don't belong here. No. Like I'm I was not the only like black every, one. I'm not like yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but that wasn't why. Right. But I was the only black one. But yeah, they were all heroin addicts. You know, Scott had four DUIs when he got there. I'd never oh. been arrested. Okay. You know, I I'd never gone to a drug dealer. All my all my Ambien were from prescriptions from right. doctors. It's funny and, how we justify the yes, levels. Right. You know, yes. It's like, you know, but I white wonder, collar crime, blue collar guys, crime. It's yes. all the same, you know. Do you think at any I mean Clearly, I know you're not going to blame the doctor, but no. is there something that they should at some point say no more? Well, he did. Yeah. Oh, okay. He did. He cut me off. And that was the big tragedy of my life. <laughs> I was devastated when he said that. What did he say exactly? He said that um, the pharmacist had, because I was getting prescriptions from more than one doctor. Mm. Right. Doctor shopping is the name of that chapter. <laughs> And, so yeah. if I can interject, yeah. um, when you because I know she had the skim through it because she just got it last night, but um, there's a part where she's talking about right now where she goes, I need I to go, and, I, and I'm going to call it your black market, your yes. black market. First, she goes, yeah. I have to order it online now. I can order 300 pills and da-da-da, but I'm going to do it. And so she's going through this back and forth in her mind, but she does it. And so you found a way. I mean, I that's did. like yeah. they always find, you know, everyone finds a way. When you yeah, really need true. something, want something, you will scrim, scrape, and scratch yes. to get what you want. So. Yeah. And that was like not done then. I know people order like their daily Adderall off the internet now. The internet. They I don't know you can do that. Oh my god. Oh yeah, you don't no. even you need Adderall? like a doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. There's actually a big shortage now because Thank so you, many Canada. people are. <laughs> oh my god. More so than Mexico. Ordering. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah, but back then it just wasn't really done. So the sites were like in Chinese, and mm. you weren't. It wasn't really brand name. So you weren't. I mean, I could have died. I was yeah, like well, ordering that's... shit that I didn't know what it was, but. That's like how far gone I was. I was willing to take that risk. You probably didn't even think about that even being a possibility. No, not until I saw the bottle that I was like, hmm. Oh. <laughs> but as I popped one in my mouth. So <laughs> looking at the bottle. Like, maybe. Yeah. Huh. Maybe. Um, so let's talk about now with your with after you get out. Um, Scott's a big part of this now, I know, for yes. you. So um, what's the recovery and how did how do you feel he helped you along the way? Theoretically, because I know you have to do the work yourself. It's not any, you can have 50 people around you. And and before you answer that, I wanted to ask you one thing out. I have to backtrack one on this one. 
apparently who was in your corner? Did you have anyone that you thought of that you can maybe remotely talk to a friend, you know, like, cause I know there's always gotta be one person that you might trust enough to share anything with. You mean before I went into treatment? Yeah. Just through all this whole ride. Mm -hmm. So you kept everything into yourself. Yes. No one ever knew. I, I had a best friend who is still my really good friend and she knew something was up. But she didn't. She had no idea. Okay, but she never questioned. She never asked, or did she ask? And you just kind she of she didn't ask me about drugs. Okay. The, you, the thing was because I was getting a divorce. Everybody thought I was depressed about the divorce. Okay. So like me canceling stuff or not showing up on time, that was all attributed to symptoms of depression. It's a great alibi. Yeah, <clears> yeah, <throat> it really was. Right. So I was like, okay, that works. <laughs> so yeah. we'll well. we'll go with that. Um, Scotty was extremely helpful to me. So like he was just a comfort to me in treatment, like I said, but when, once we got back and we had like custody, like, you know, my, my ex-husband got the weekends and I was, so we did something really unconventional to my ex and I, where I, I stayed in the house where we raised our kids. He moved to, we had another home in Malibu. So he moved there. Um, he worked in the city and then every morning he would get there before the kids woke up. We would all have breakfast. I read that. Yeah. And then he would come back at night, you know, if he could, to and we'd have dinner. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And you did this for two years. We did it for two years. We actually wow. did it for a little bit longer, yeah. but it was it was two solid years. And and so my weekdays were very occupied. I had my kids. I had like my normal life. Um, we were trying to really give our kids the foundation that they wanted and I felt like they needed from us. So um, that was busy, but on the weekends when he took them and I was by myself, it was like the world mm -hmm. opened up and swallowed me. Okay. Like I was, I didn't know what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. Enter Scott. He would take me to recovery meetings. We would go to the movies. We would go out to eat. Like he kept me occupied during those weekends, especially those first like six crucial first months. It was so nice. I... I don't know. I have no idea what I would have done without mm -hmm. him. Right. I probably would have been okay. Like I probably would have stayed sober. I probably would have made it through. But I don't know. I, I don't died know. inside. Yeah, it's it's so hard, isn't it? It is, mm -hmm. and especially yeah. like the Christmas. Like you give yeah. birth to these children. Like yeah. why am I waking up Christmas morning with yeah. no kids? Yeah, it's so like devastating. It's it's it is a a void like no other. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I, I'm fully aware because of therapy and because of all the help I've gotten since I got sober, how dependent I am on that, that identity as a mom. Yeah. Like, so if I'm not being their mom now, what am I kind mm -hmm. of thing? Like, who am I? Who, who am, am I? I today? Yeah. That's yeah. how I would yes. feel because mm -hmm. there's so many avenues that yes. I wake up and I'm like, and it's frustrating at times because you're like, well, who the fuck am I today? Yep. Like, what am I yes. doing? Because yes. I, for me, I craved that consistency that you have when you're married and you have the kids. Yes. And then when it's all taken from you, you're like, all right, well, what am I doing today? Like, right. who am I? Yeah. Like, we go to work and have all these different <coughs> things. But at the end of the day, like, our, our, our kids are, are driving force. Uh. Like, that's – that was – so that was really difficult. And I, I – when I read that, I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. The strongest instinct I have is my maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. The fact that this this addiction that I have overrode that means that addiction mm. was a monster. Right. It was it was the biggest thing I'd ever encountered because I would take a bullet for my kids mm -hmm. in a second. Yeah. And this thing was bigger. So I had to find something bigger mm -hmm. than my addiction in order to get help so that I could go back to my original instinct, which was bigger than my instinct for self-preservation. Obviously, because I was, you know, I popped that pill in my mouth when I read the bottle from China and I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't really care. I wasn't trying to commit suicide. I never thought I want right. to leave this earth, but I, I wasn't careful with my life, mm -hmm. but I was careful with my kids' lives. You know, like I really, ev everything I did was for them, including getting sober, right. which, which they say you're not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I did it, but I stay sober because it's, it's the best thing for me. But yeah. And and so then back to Scotty, you know, the that having that support was amazing. But also all the things that I fronted, the things that I told you about, the pretending like I graduated from high school mm -hmm. and college and I was like the other publicist and I like spa days and all that stuff. When I met him, 
I was certainly not trying to impress him. I was just trying to get through each day in treatment. So he saw me authentically. He mm. met the authentic oh, Laura. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, you didn't try to go surfing or anything crazy like that? No, but, no. Okay. And, no. And so, I mean, she couldn't. I, I, I know. <laughs> I'm just saying, you never know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, we were in the middle <laughs> of the desert. But, um, <laughs> but it was because he met me then and fell in love with me that way, I've never had to pretend with him. And when I when it came into play, like when my natural like intuition to pretend that I like this or like that when I didn't, the people pleasing came up, he was he spotted it instantly. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, that's mm. great. Call you on. I love you that. You don't like that. Love that. He's like, I'm going on the surf trip because he goes on surf trips by himself. I've never been on a surf trip with him. I would hate it. Yeah. yeah. And you know, not because I, I hate surfing, but because he goes through these rural areas where there's like world class left breaks and like like it's just like it's I want cabanas. <laughs> I want yeah. I want like beautiful white sand beaches. I don't really care if there's any surf. Like we and we do those vacations together. But he takes those trips by himself and he never gives me shit for like not wanting to do it with him because we have like we have, you know, I have my own circle of stuff that I do. He has his own circle. Mm. And then we have a circle together. I love that. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Well, that was, we were just talking mm -hmm. about that on the way over here. Yeah. I think it's so important. Right. I think people need that. You know, you have to have your own sense of self-worth and what you like to do and mm -hmm. have some, obviously you have things together, but sometimes when I feel like people are on just on top of each other way too much, everything's just get a little lost. And so yeah. you lose a little bit of yourself. So yeah, I appreciate I so. that. Mm -hmm. um, well, I know that we're running out a little bit of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. So uh, let us know how is, how I'm going to use this in the third person for you. How is Laura today? Like, where are you? I know that you just touched upon that a little bit about with Scotty and everything, but you're like, let's, I'm just going to be, put it out there. Is imposter syndrome now just a, just a, just a something in the past now? Do we still have little bouts with certain things or are you just solid? You got your two authentic self down. Well, first of all, imposter syndrome is the basis for stash my life in hiding. So I am grateful that I lived that way for yeah. so long mm -hmm. because so many people, regardless of gender or race or socioeconomic status, have experienced that and understand it. Um, it makes my life that I've written about in this book relatable to everybody, regardless Very of addiction. Very much so, yeah. Um, of course, there are pulls like everyday life when I'm on these Zoom calls with like, these really important people, you know, captains of industry, people in C street, C suites, <laughs> C suites. I want to, um, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to pretend like I understand things when I don't, or uh, chime in about something that I don't know anything about, or you know, or or go along mm -hmm. with something that in, I instinctively don't feel is right for me. I'm tempted, but part of my recovery is honesty. Yes. It's really important to me to be honest about everything, including, you know, not saying I'm five minutes away when I haven't left the house yet. Like that kind of thing. Damn it. It's I work on that. <laughs> Damn Laura. No, I know it, it's it's not a big deal, but yeah. for me it is. It's of a very slippery slope. So in order for me to maintain this freedom that I found in my life today, which is amazing and huge and rich. I have to be honest about everything. So even though the temptation to slide back into imposter syndrome might might be there, I yeah. have to sidestep it. That's not true. I don't have to. I choose to sidestep mm -hmm. it. Right. Because I really what's over here is so much better for me than than what's over there. Love that. Yeah. Love that. Mm, All right. Amazing. Um, well, I know we're coming winding down, but we do need to ask her a question of the day. So um, we uh -huh. always give everyone a question of the day. So we're going to have you lead with this one. But okay. thank Don't you so leave. much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Like you're you're just so a, an good. amazing, oh, amazing you soul. And your energy is just off the chart. Yes. And we're very appreciative of you being here mm. today. All right. With that being said, um, we're going to read the question of the day. Oh, my gosh. All right, so, it's really long. Is no, that I that's mean, what it's just a little, I mean, people, people, got, people ask us stuff. Mo, I mean, they ask us stuff. All right. You know, I just want okay. like a one sentence. 
sentence. <laughs> okay, so it was, hi, Christopher and Jamie, longtime fan of the show. And I have to say, thank you for helping me with so many different issues that I can relate to on your show with topics you have discussed. Mm. So here's my dilemma. I've been with this date. I, I have been dating this guy for over three years now, and I feel that it has started to fall a little flat. We started dating right out of college, and I had the expectations that he would, would have proposed to me by now. Not that I want to get married anytime soon, but I also don't want to waste my time um, if of my early 20s, wondering what else is out there in the world for me. We're, we, let's see, we've been living together for a while and I work remote from home. He is in between jobs right now and I feel like he isn't making the effort to better his life in order to show me that he is the man that I should settle down with in the future. Recently, I had a job offer that would advance my career, but it's in another state. I'm a little hesitant to have this conversation with him because it would mean that the distance might kill the relationship. I don't know how to approach the conversation with him and was looking for your advice. Maybe I've already checked out and just need a confirmation from you guys. Help. Wow. Yeah. Had to be lengthy. Man. So, so <laughs> many things come to mind. There, There's something in 12-step work where regarding relationships, where you're looking at kind of like figuring out what kind of relationship person you are and, and righting wrongs in relationships so you can have better ones. And it's one of the steps. So one of the things they ask you to do is come up with a relationship ideal. And that's not like the ideal man or the ideal woman. It's a relationship idea. Like I want to be somebody with somebody. I want to be in a relationship where we go to the beach once a week. I want to be in a relationship where we stay home in our pajamas and watch Netflix at night. Um, that's the kind of relation. I want to. I want to be able to be authentic with this person. I want to show up um, this way with this person. I, I want to be, you know, where we where we communicate instead mm -hmm. of just shutting each other out. Like whatever it is. So you write this ideal out, and then once you're in a relationship. You see if your your other person's ideals match your relationship ideal. If they don't, that's okay, as long as you're both willing to grow toward the same ideal. Right. And the growing toward is the big part of it. So if one person's growing and the other person's staying still, it's it typically, in my experience, doesn't work. Um, I think both people have to be growing toward a similar ideal. It's not about being good or bad. It's just about being the right fit. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the distance would kill that relationship. I think it's already done yeah. from what she's describing. It just, but that might be a tool they could try is mm -hmm. for, for her to write out what her relationship ideal is, see if it's what he's interested in. Okay. He might be interested in a completely different type of relationship. And then she knows what, what, whatever she does with it is, is her business, right. but she, at least she has an answer <clears throat> to, are we headed in the same direction? Yeah, I like that's it. That's a great answer. Girlfriend, take the job. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> take the job. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to agree with you guys. So I think she needs to take the job because I feel like she's already made up her mind. Uh, she deep down knows that it's not going to work out anymore. But I, I, like, I do like the fact that she's trying to hold on to something because I feel like at least she's willing to try. But once again, like you said, she needs to have a conversation with them. And maybe you guys need to map out mm -hmm. if it's something that is pointing in the I right like direction. That. So um, otherwise, I think that job is saying, hello. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, there's also that expression when you're holding on to something, let go or get dragged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she might be getting dragged right now. Right. Especially if and she's in her early 20s. Not to say too. that it won't work later, but yeah. I think for the time being, like you take care of you. And mm -hmm. if it works out down the line, then that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, take the job, okay. girl. All right. Well, we Do agree you. with that one. Yes. <laughs> Do I you. Like it. Yes. All right, guys. Well, um, Laura, thank you so much for being here today. We were just, just and such thank a, you yeah. for your sweater, Laura. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> guys, uh, it we looks have, great. We have Laura Cuthbert Robbins on her show. Her new <laughs> book, Stash, you know, it. My Life in Hiding is out now. So please check it out and yes. uh, get a get a load of it. It's 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 a great read. It's a great, it's an easy read, I have to say. It's 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 thank it's, you. it's it's just so easy to read because it's just the flow is incredible. So I appreciate um, that. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before we go today? Um, just the podcast, okay. the only yes, one in the please. room podcast, mm. anywhere you get podcasts, you can hear me and Hun, yes. Scott S412, who I write about in the book. He is my co-host, producer, and boyfriend. Aww. Although I would like an, at another time for you guys to help me find another name for boyfriend in my 50s, because I just think that doesn't apply. Right. I feel like that now. Do you? I, I think it like... 
Like they deserve a bigger title. Well, and, than and, that. and thank right? you. Right. And yes. life partner's yeah. a little too. Life partner's like much, you know what I mean. It's two words. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. like that. Either. Okay, <laughs> really I'm cheesy. up for that one. And I don't like saying this is my partner. No, no, because I can either sound business or gay. Yeah, like yeah. One yeah. Of the that's two. true. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Not Good that point. there's anything wrong with gay, but it's just <laughs> yeah. not where I am. Right. We are an yeah. equal opportunity show. Yes, we love everyone. I feel like he needs like a stronger. Man like, friend. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, He's, I just why think Why can't you just call him my dude? This is right. my dude. This is my dude. Man. Yeah. This she my, says my man a lot. Yeah, I, I, I like I that, say actually. Man. So. I say person. Like, sometimes I'll say, he's uh, my person. I think See, that's, like, sweet and endearing. Yeah. I think everyone should so come up with their own endearment So it depends on the vibe, term. like, mm-hmm. how... What right. Because there are this times when person. you're going to be like, like, this is my man. Yeah. 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 Right. You know? And then other times you're like, oh, this, this, yeah. this is my Yeah. And my man, guy. that's, like, really claimy. Like, right. I like that. But we'll work on it. Yeah. I'm more aggressive. So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, this is my man. Jeez. All right. This one over here. Love you to death, though, sweetheart. All right, Jamie, what do you have the plug for we leave today? Um, Agent 80. Is it 84? Okay. Look. Look on me really Agent, quick. Wait, okay. What am I looking <laughs> You're at? You're going to hate me. <laughs> Agent, Agent 84. Agent She's 84. right. Yes. Thank you guys so much for the fitness gear. I'm ah. loving it. Super comfortable. Traveled in it yesterday. Really cute, um, too. Yeah. All right. So. All right, guys. And once again, I'm going to just give a shout out to our studio today. Mo, being our yeah. producer today. Yay, Thank you so much. Mo. We're Thanks, here Mo. visiting in LA at uh, Melrose Podcast Studios. So, and I, for all of us, uh, you can find us dating intelligence at anything social media. And my personal is at Fetch Sport and uh, check out my new dating coach stuff as well. People, I'm going to plug Yay! that today. I'm now yes. live as a dating coach, so I'm pushing that forward. If you need any help with anything, I'm the guy. So, all right, that's another episode, and thanks so much. We're out. <laughs>